Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning. You're listening to Green Left Radio, brought to you by 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. I'm Chloe, your host for today, and I'm also joined by Rob. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Chloe. It's so lovely to be out uh, in such beautiful weather at 7 a.m., yes. Yeah, it is It is a, a good time to be awake, and I hope um, listeners are doing well this morning. Before we begin, I'd like to start by recognising that 3CR and Green Left Radio is being broadcast on the land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, the rightful sovereign owners of the land, land that was stolen, it was taken by force, they never ceded sovereignty, and their, the colonisation of their land continues to this day. And just like Israel, Australia was founded on the genocide and dispossession of the First People, and we recognise that their genocide and dispossession is ongoing, and that struggle for First Nation sovereignty is deeply connected with the struggles against racism and border imperialism that we all live with today. We stand with all the First Peoples in their struggle for justice. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah, and um, it, it's a good time also to agitate against the capitalist system. I mean, it's not just nice weather. <laughs> and we will be joined pretty soon by um, Green Left's um, resident construction worker, Zane. He's coming in. Hopefully. Yeah, no, he said <laughs> about 15 minutes and He's we're on live. His way. Yes. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us, listeners. We have a packed program for you today. At 7.20, we have an interview with Mercedes from Renegade Activists to talk about the weapons manufacturing industry that's linked to Israel's ongoing genocide. At 7.40, we're going to be hearing from human rights political ad- activist Lionel Bopigay. Um, it's a, he's going to give us a, an update on the economic crisis in Sri Lanka. At 8 a.m., we have a live update from Jasper Collins Hunter from Camp Sovereignty, which is a group of very staunch indigenous activists uh, right now who are remaining indefinitely at a camp at King's Domain until that site is returned to the Aboriginal community. So look forward to hearing from, from Jasper Collins Hunter at 8. Then we're going to have the activist calendar. And then at 8.10, we're going to be hearing from Deputy Branch Secretary of the MUA Victoria, David Ball, to talk about the outcome of the DP World industrial dispute. But before we, you know, get into all those interviews, maybe, um, you know, Rob and I can just, uh, you know, talk about a few news headlines. I mean, our minds are really focused on the people of, of Palestine with, with Israel and its imperialist allies being responsible for Gaza being one massive um, human rights crisis and human humanitarian disaster where the death toll, well, you know, the murders, the murder toll of Palestinians have passed 27,000. I mean, some some are saying it's over 30,000. Um, 
with many infants and children killed by Israeli forces and, and people just now starving, or they have been starving, trying to survive on things like birdseed. Um, they've run out of water and are staggering 1.0 million Palestinians in Gaza. That's more than 80% of the population have been internally displaced. And, and Gaza is, you know, if you can picture it, it's about one-third the size of Melbourne. And, um, you know, this is all in the midst of, well, you know, Labor has now suspended aid to, to the UN Palestine Refugee Agency. So we are continuing to march in our thousands for Gaza. Um, but, you know, we, we also want to draw attention to the fact that, um, you know, we, we can link that um, on a smaller scale, but we can link that to the homeless Homeless, um, homelessness crisis here in Australia. Um, and I'm referring to a news item in The Guardian um, that's entitled Homeless Australians Are Dying at Age 44 on Average in Hidden Crisis. I mean, it's not that hidden. We can, we can, see, we can see the rough sleepers on, uh, on the streets. Um, and it is quite appalling... Um, that we are going through one of the worst housing crises um, amidst a, a cost of living crisis, um, and you know, labour has has not really, you know, being the spare wheel of capitalism, is doing what it does best and what it always does, just introduce reforms um, which only go part way, only to take the pressure off the capitalist system every few years. So they haven't really, you know, they're doing things like destroying public public housing, um, they haven't actually, um, you know, as well as Palestine, people who may still hold on to the illusions that Labor's going to do wonderful things. Um, it's been shown that Labor has really failed to deal with any urgent social and economic, ecological needs, mainly the, the housing crisis and the, and the climate catastrophe. Um, Rob, did yeah. you? Well, th- there's no point in me saying what I think because... You said it all for me, so um, we can talk about that some other time. So I'll just bring in uh, a couple of other things. So, yeah, Palestine, you know, every morning I wake up. Mm. I think I've said this on the program too many times. I wake up, and I wake up very early, and I go online, and I see how many people have been killed by the disgusting uh, goon squads of, of the Israeli state. Uh, it's, it's usually about 300 a day. <laughs> it's just a number, 300 mm. human beings. Uh, and I, I have said this a few times as well. Um, unlike um, in Nazi Germany, where, where really Hitler just wanted the Jews out, basically. I, he either you know, put them you know, into, into a concentration camp and, and gassed them, or really, really Hitler wanted them out. So, and that's why they came to Israel, and that's why they've ended up doing even worse than what the Nazis did. So at the moment, the situation with the Gazans in, in, in Gaza, it's an open-air prison. They're pretty well not allowed to go out. I think, I'm not totally sure of this, but I think Israel has actually blocked uh, their way out. Plus, there's another factor here, which is Egypt doesn't want them, doesn't want the Palestinians. Jordan doesn't want the Palestinians. Um, Syria and uh, Iraq and uh, Lebanon don't want the Palestinians, so they're really stuck. They're, they're stuck like, I don't know, battery chickens or something. It's, it's just terrible. And, and they are slowly dying. 
It's a slow death. It's a slow death over months and months. And we can see it on television. We can watch this live. And for anyone, you know, I, I don't want to watch it, but I'm forced, my partner says, you have to watch this. Mm. Netanyahu, this is very interesting, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has now come under so much pressure from the hard Zionists, uh, Bezal al-Smotrich, um, and he has taken a right turn. He has been seen in the West as somebody who was a little bit more tolerant, but now he knows that there's an election coming up in, in Israel, and Bezal al-Smotrich, you know, has a very good chance of winning. And he, he's, Smotrich is like basically a Hitler. He is someone who wants to eliminate two million Palestinians. He has said so in mm. the press. It's not like, you know, he's hiding it. So Netanyahu has taken a right turn, and, um, you know, this does, does not um, make things look ter- terribly good for Israeli society. Final word anyway, so here, here in Australia, Prime Minister Albanese and Foreign Minister Wong are patting themselves on the back to say, you know, well, we're, we're giving some aid. Uh, it's not much. I mean, it's just, it's, it's bloody peanuts, I'm afraid. Yeah. And, and I know there are a lot of people who think the Labour Party, uh, are really fantastic and they're, they're doing the right thing. They, they could be doing so much more. Like, to start with, they could be meeting Palestinians. Wong won't do that. Okay, so that's enough ranting from me. <laughs> no, no, we, we, we love a good rant, um, on Green Left. That's, that's what, that's what we're here for. But, but I also did want to talk about, um, you know, the fact that, you know, you know, I was sort of, um, if, if anyone hasn't read that article, home, and we, we will sort of do, do a bit of a, a piece in Green Left soon. I mean, we've written about the, the housing crisis quite extensively, and, you know, we can kind of, um, relate this to the Palestinian movement. I mean, lots of things can be linked to the, to the Palestinian movement, the housing crisis, the refugee crisis. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it, it is, um, it is like a it is a, a humanitarian crisis here as well. The fact that you know people don't have places to live, and when you don't have a safe place to call home, it, you do see the rise of things like um, mental health um, problems. Um, you do see the rise of um, you know suicide rates go up. Um, there was one um, healthcare staff that was talking to someone who was homeless and. They had said something like, and I'm referring to that Guardian article, they said it's hard to find a reason to live when you have nowhere to live. Um, they were discharged and were and found dead a, a short time later. Um, so, you know, this is this is a, a, a huge issue, and we do need to... The, the housing campaign is relatively new because, you know, we do live in sort of a... Under capitalism, we are sort of facing that kind of individualistic... Um, you know, an individualistic society where, you know, there is this idea that, well, if you don't have a house, it means you didn't work hard enough. Um, you know, <laughs> you, 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 all the people who own houses now, it's because, you know, they deserve it. Well, no, actually housing should be considered a human right. Um, everyone deserves a, a place to call home. Um, and if I could just kind of refer to this article, it's just, it's just so appalling. Um, it, it says that, um, a 12-month Guardian Australia investigation identifying and examining more than 600 cases has found people experiencing homelessness are dying at an average age of 44. That is a shocking life expectancy gap um, that is 
worse than any other disadvantaged group in the country. Um, yeah, so I encourage people to, to kind of, yeah, read that. Um, not that I'm encouraged people to go and read the, the Guardian, um, uh, of all things. I mean, uh, but you know, that this is actually, actually quite a eye-opening, um, thing that, uh, this investigation found that suicide and overdose are major drivers of deaths among those experiencing ho- homelessness, and they accounted for one-fifth one fifth and one-third of deaths, respectively, according to an analysis um, of 627 known homeless deaths reported to the coroner between January 2010 and December 2020. So that's quite a long study. And they're describing these as deaths of despair, and say they are directly connected to the trauma and desperation of homelessness. And that's compounded by the vast waits for emergency and public housing. Um, and renters are, we know renters are facing record-breaking rent rises right now as the housing crisis worsens. Public housing waitlists are growing. Um, and the emergence of, we're seeing people um, put up tent cities. People have to sleep in their cars um, so it is, it is really, it is really difficult, um, right now. And we do, you know, solidarity to anyone out there listening who, uh, is going through a really hard time. Whatever you're doing, um, you know, if you are, if you don't have anywhere to live, um, yeah, um, solidarity. We, I'm sure, um, a lot of our listeners have, might have experienced, um, homelessness. And homelessness doesn't necessarily refer to sleeping rough on the street. It just means you don't have, a permanent place to live. Yeah, well, look, um, I've written down too many things. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> coming here in the morning and doing this program actually makes my blood boil. Um, okay, The Guardian. Well, I'd rather read The Guardian than The Herald Scum, that's for sure. But, like, The Guardian, in, in a way, is worse because they pretend to be um, progressive and liberal and all of that. Whereas the Herald Scum, uh, you know, they're, they're totally open about their politics. Housing. Okay, come on, Albanese, come on. You could fix this tomorrow. I mean, it's, it's a, a, a signature of a pen, and I, I reckon the entire housing crisis could be fixed tomorrow because the funds are there in the capitalist system, and, and, and the, the capitalists can still have, you know, Plenty of profit left over, but they could solve this problem. So there's something ideological there that says, you know, a bit like what you said, Chloe, um, they've got to convince people that, you know, if you're homeless, it must be your fault. And, you know, you didn't try hard enough. That's what the system of capitalism is about in terms of the ideology. You know, um, you, you are an individual. You know, it's not, not to do with, like, workers going on strike collectively or communities protesting collectively it's about individuals getting out there you know a bit like my father who was a small businessman you know the individual has to sort of do everything rent rises i don't know what to say about this i i was a renter and and the rises i remember um in in a short period of something like 15 years uh the house that we were renting in fitzroy started off i think it was 180 a week and within about 10 years it was like 600 a week and and i have been reading the statistics of the rent rises and and they're much more astronomical than what i have just said and then i sort of think okay number one do the landlords really need this money you know um well it's 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 again an ideological question and then i stop and think how much money are these people making okay mental health mental health 
uh, yeah, indeed. I, you know, every time I go into the city or even up Brunswick Street, you know, I, I, I see these people who, whose behaviour is sometimes threatening and is certainly not pleasant to witness. And then, you know, your ordinary people sometimes who uh, are walking in the street say, oh, what disgusting behaviour. Can't these people behave? Well, you wonder, how can they? How can they? Um, mm. if, if, if they have not received the support that is their right, you know, to deal with mental health. Suicides, oh, maybe that's a better solution, honestly. It, it, it's blessed relief. Um, that's a terrible thing to say. Anyway, we just have to keep fighting this stuff. Yeah, and good morning, Zane. Zane has just joined us as another presenter. And Zane, Rob and I were just uh, talking about the homelessness, homeless Australians dying at age 44 on average in hidden crisis. This is an article in The Guardian that's come out in the last few days, and we were just unpacking that. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with what you say, Rob. The, the problem could be solved tomorrow with the stroke of a pen, and not only could it be solved with major investment in public housing, well, it couldn't be solved tomorrow. It would take a while to build uh, all this public housing, but you could certainly get it, make a big dent in the problem very quickly. Uh, not only could the government solve this quite quickly if it had the will, if it was building public housing instead of nuclear submarines, mm. it would be very popular because there's millions of people who are paying extremely high rents and homelessness is kind of the uh, pointiest part of the crisis. So by solving homelessness, by building large amounts of public housing, you'd be also putting a bunch of low-cost public housing into the market, and that would have the effect of bringing down housing prices across the board. And uh, I, I agree as well. I think uh, I, I can't help thinking I saw some analysis that said that uh, more than half of Australia's rental housing stock is owned by landlords who own multiple properties because there was this uh, analysis a while back that was saying, oh, you know, the majority of landlords in Australia are, you know, mum and dad bloody landlords who've got an investment property. And it's like, okay, technically that's true, but it's also true that this giant slab of Australia's rental market is owned by property investors who own multiple properties. And yeah, people who've maybe taken out a mortgage um, 30 years ago to buy a rent an investment property and were paying, you know, 300 bucks a, a month mortgage or 500 bucks a month mortgage, they've either fully paid it off or they're still paying 500 bucks a month mortgage, but they're renting the thing out for three grand a month. And yeah, it's disgusting the way that the rents just keep getting pushed up and up and they bear no relationship to what the landlord paid for that house and what their monthly mortgage repayments are, if they are still indeed paying any mortgage. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, many, many years ago, I used to live in Bondi in Sydney, and um, I remember seeing this massively tall um, apartment block going up, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I found out that um, they were empty. They could hardly fill it. They were luxury apartments, and nobody could afford them. 
What a complete waste. This is the waste of the capitalist system. That's right. Uh, so we're going to go for a, to a quick break and stay with us because we'll be back with an interview with Mercedes from Renegade Activists to talk about the weapons manufacturing industry. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. We're back on Green Left Radio on 3CR, and we are joined by Mercedes, who's from Renegade Activists, to talk a little bit about the weapons manufacturing industry. Um, Mercedes is a member of the Renegade Solidarity Audio Force crew who has been involved in all kinds of local radical activism from Free Assange uh, to Melbourne's Palestinian motorcades. And Mercedes is also a 3CR broadcaster on Uprise Radio. Welcome to the show, Mercedes. Thank you so much, Chloe. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. And you're also joined um, by um, Rob and Zane. Hi, Rob and Zane. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, it's good, it's good to have you on the program. Um, and I guess just to start this interview off, we, you know, we were um, on the picket line together last Friday and we will be again um, mm-hmm. outside of HTA, the, the factory HTA. Um, you know, for some new listeners, they might not know what this is all about. So we just wanted to maybe kick off the interview by asking how does HTA fit in, in, into the genocide in Gaza through their role in weapons manufacturing? Yeah, um, good question. So good morning, listeners. Um, as you said, uh, we're at Hate Treatment Australia, which is at 43 43B Lara Way in Campbellfield. Um, so if you weren't there last week, definitely suggest getting out there um, today because there's another going to be on the ticket line again at 11 o'clock this morning. So Heat Treatment Australia, or known as HDA, um, is a what's called a small to medium enterprise that undergo the metallurgical processing and heat treatment of parts for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. So that's just one of the things that they do alongside um, other treatment processing for companies like BAE Systems as well. Um, but so what what that heat treatment is is that every part that is um, that is manufactured in Australia for the F-35 as part of the global supply chain needs to go undergo kind of quite high pressure um, treatment before it can be assembled into the weapon um, 
um, the complete weapon that it is. And so that's what HDA does, is that so all of these parts... Um, so it doesn't manufacture parts it's, um, itself as such, um, but it, it undergoes that metallurgical processing, which is, you know, one of the... Um, one of the steps that's necessary for these weapons to be able to fly and so all of the parts that are made by the different companies like um, uh, Rosebank Engineering from Levitt, um, from Lovett, from Thales, from BAE, um, from Morand, they all need to go through through this company in order to be able to be assembled. Um, so it is a very important part in the global supply chain of the F-35 yeah, thanks, thanks, Mercedes. Um, that was a really good explanation. I mean, they've been HDA has probably been doing this for years. So, how did the Campbell, Campbell Field factory's role in manufacturing parts for for the F-35s become known to the activists and also the local community? Um, yeah, so Hume for Palestine uh, is a group that is set up in within that local area. Um, and you know they've they've been doing some really great work in the local community. Um, how how it became known, um, you know, this, as as you said, um, this company has been around, I think, since. Um, if let me just have a quick look at the notes here um, <laughs> that are, that I've got. Yeah, I think they've been around since the seventies. Oh, um, so. So this company kind of started as a, as a small company and have grown into a into a defence, um, in de- like a process in for the defence force um, and for the global supply chain of F-35. So, I mean, um, as you said, I'm part of Renegade Activist, and um, you know, a few months ago, um, thanks to the work of my comrade Jacob, um, Renegade Activist put out a um, a flyer which just was with a non-exhaustive list of um, a lot of the weapons companies within our local area that were involved. So, um, and you know, there was obviously quite a lot of interest when people saw um, within the community um, saw that there were weapons factories and companies just close to where they where they're living and working. Um, so, this is work that Renegade Activists has been doing since ADEX in the late 80s and early 90s, um, is to expose the masters of war. Um, and that's, you know, really a, a important work because, yeah, so, so often these companies kind of just, you could just drive by and not know what they do. Um, and they, you know, as you said, they're just in a, in a little industrial estate out there in Campbellfield and no mm. one really knows what, what goes on there. So it's really important to expose that these are really, um, integral parts to to what's happening in in Gaza. And I will just add that I didn't say before, HTA, um, the Director of Corporate and Strategy of HTA is Dr. Karen Stanton, and um, she's also the Executive Chair of Albert Systems Australia, which, of course, Albert Systems is Israel's largest defence um, and weapons company um, and is providing the weapons and the tooling for the genocide in Gaza. That's pretty interesting. So can you, I don't know, I, I, I imagine you've been digging trying to find out how close those links are between Elbit and HTA. That seems very peculiar that someone from Elbit would be, you know, the what, what was her position, sorry, at, at HTA? Uh, so Dr. Karen Stanton is the Director of Corporate Strategies. Essentially she's the owner of HTA, um, 
and is the daughter of the founder of HTA. Um, so, you know, this, this is a, a family, there's a small family business, you know. Um, and so, yeah, Karen Stanton is also on the advisory board of the Centre for Defence and Industry, which is a government initiative or known as the CDIC. Um, and which is the, an Australian government advisory body for defence. Um, so Karen Sanders sits on the board of that and is also in... Uh, it was in 2021. Um, she was made executive chair of the board of Albert Systems Australia. Interestingly, um, in 2018, Albert Systems Australia was under, some, under scrutiny um, because there was a part of their exported weapons called the battle management system that there was a suspicion that they were being used for espionage and uh, during that time that Albert Systems Australia appointed Dr Karen Stanton to fund and um, lead that investigation under Albert Systems Australia it was eventually exoner um, it was exonerated and then in 2021 she was made executive chair of the board Ah, so she did a good job of the investigation and got a job out of it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, thank you, appear. Yeah, thank you, Mercedes, for um, mentioning ADEX because I, I was actually there in nineteen. Are you too? Right. Nin, Ninety-one oh, or ninety-two. No, I wasn't. No. Yeah, because I, 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 I'm a Canberra boy and I just travelled back to Canberra, and it was it was amazing. It was a massive protest, and mm -hmm. and it, and it shut down. It shut down ADEX. You know all these. These uh, appalling generals and and uh, you know arms dealers, they couldn't actually have their conference. You know, it was a massive yeah. protest. People came from all over Australia and just shut it down. Um, now, just Which a very fantastic. Yeah, it, it so wasn't great. It, wasn't, around weapons and it was really something. And now, uh, just on on the weekend, we we did have a three hour picket up at uh, Campbellfield. And, you know, it's not exactly the most accessible location, and yet there was, I counted, because I'm a crowd counter, um, about 500 people uh, blockaded for those three hours. The, there were uh, two or three trucks that couldn't get out, right? Um, and I know trucks go in and out every day, but, like, it was really great that two or three of these trucks didn't get out. And that cost. That cost the company, and it slowed down Israel's attacks, and, and it shows people power. So I just thought that was really great and, you know, we should just keep on doing stuff like this. Oh, absolutely, because, you know, there's... Um, and and as a multifaceted approach as well, because as we can see, you know, these, these companies and the way that they are able to operate is so um, closely linked to... Um, to policies within our gov in, within government, um, the accountability for them is, is difficult within a, a network of global capital, and um, and so we need to do everything we can to try and expose and and shift the systems that allow these things, these companies to to go on uh, unchecked and to be providing weapons for genocide. Yeah, and and w whether you know that's in Gaza, that's in West Papua. Um, that's here in Australia against First Nations people. You know, these are these are weapons that are part of a, a global network of armament. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mercedes, you, you did mention there will be another protest today, and there is a regular picket. 
uh, and there have been direct actions um, targeting HTA. Uh, how has the movement evolved? Or can you talk about you know how how the movement has evolved and incorporated all these different tactics? Um, yeah, so as it as it has done, you know, for a long time, as Rob just said, you know, with ADEX, there was people that came from all over to shut down the arms fair. Um, but yeah, so there is a protest tomorrow at, um, sorry, today. Yeah. It's today already, isn't it? Um, <laughs> at 11 o'clock this morning. Um, it's, it's a bit early for me, to be honest. I'm, I'm a bit more of a late morning person. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, direct action, obviously I can only speak on, on, uh, the ones that I'm involved in, but I think, you know, these movements take, um, such a, a wide, um, concerted effort, um, across multiple groups and, uh, to, to be effective. Um, and these, you know, there's so many, you know, autonomous actions, um, are fantastic, you know, coordinated actions are really important. I guess that uh, renegade activists, um, you know, the tactic we use is, is exposure about these companies. Um, and, and as we've always said, you know, the, the first step to challenging the masters of war is to expose them. And that's kind of always been, been a part of, of what the work renegade activist does. Um, and, it's great to see that these are coming up and in, in, you know, the shift in a mainstream discourse that people are now starting to, to, you know, link weapons and, and defence export um, and Australia's role in that directly to what is happening um, in Gaza at the moment. So I'm not sure. I probably haven't answered your question. Sorry, Chloe. No, no, no. You absolutely did uh, throughout throughout the interview. We really appreciate you getting up early to speak to speak with us, Mercedes, <laughs> this morning. It is a, it is a tough it is a tough time, and we that really um, appreciate all the great work and and your your activism um, through Red and Gate act, activists and, and the Palestinian movement. Um, but I guess like you know we we're, we're going to wrap up soon, and mm-hmm. just wanted to you know ask if there's anything you'd like to let listeners know in terms of, you know, anti-weapons manufacturing activists responding to, you know, particularly the government's plans to become a, a top 10 arms exporting country? Mm, so, um, yeah, so, you know, as you said, um, mm. there is a plan to become a top 10 arms exporting country and that, that was a plan that was called the Defence Export Policy and that was actually um, announced by Malcolm Turnbull in 2018. So, you know, it's already, that's a plan that's well underway and so at that time, um, I think the government, through what's called the Defence Export Facility, pumped in have, have a, a fund, basically, which is worth $3.8 billion um, and that is administered by um, uh, export finance and so that $3 billion basically is to fund uh, and provide finance and the security to, for local companies to sell their equipment overseas. And so why, why things like this can happen with, you know, Australia is a part of free trade agreements, um, so to, to get rid of tariffs and any, any um, uh, financial barriers is that under all those free trade agreements, National security, and I'd say that in in uh, big quotations, national mm. security, 
uh, is exempt. And so this means that the government can fund defence industry and can provide that financing through such things as grants um, and subsidies for these companies and through this uh, defence export facility. And so there's actually an exemption, um, you know, as, as if it was, there's an exemption on the US and the UK of the permits for licensing um, for export uh, on on defence, in defence sector. Um, but it also, yeah, these, the national security exemption means that the government is uh, able, willing and able to finance um, these companies and and provide them with grants and you know to upgrade their tooling and things. So, what we will consider national security in regards to, you know, if there's a uh, a bushfire, you know, there's uh, or climate risk. Um, no, no, it's just for for building weapons and it allows the government to be able to keep subsidising and funding and and using that tax money. Um, to fund export of weapons and to build up the industry that way. Um, so there are a lot of mechanisms within government that are, are really pushing for this and, um, and how we fight that is to, to expose it. But, and also that's just, you know, this is what the military industrial complex is and that as part of uh, the, the flow of capital, um, and, the flow of capital, which weapons is a massive part of that. Um, so, you know, it's really about getting to, to understand and to to know and to expose just how deeply uh, in collusion the, the military industrial complex is with is with the Australian government and, and vice versa. Um, so, we've just got to keep. Keep exposing it. Keep showing up to pickets. Um, keep, you know, people on the streets is what is going to be, you know, people holding holding these companies and the government accountable. Um, and we need to know that they they are aiding and abetting a genocide in Gaza. So the government is, um, and they are actively complicit. And yeah. we need to let them know they're not going to get away with it. Yeah, here, here. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mercedes. Um, and all, all these weapons manufacturing facilities should be shut down immediately or should be producing products um, that people actually need, not weapons used for war, um, particularly the, the, the genocide of the Palestinian people. And just to um, just uh, remind us again, because these protests uh, outside HTA are being organised by Hume for Palestine. Um, they were initiated, um, it was initiated um, through a petition, I think, Calling, calling on Hume City Council to immediately close the facility. And, um, yeah, it, HTA did actually cease operations at the facility for a day last week in response to that protest. So that was a, a victory. Um, and yeah, the, I think it was two days, actually. Oh, it was yeah. two days. Oh, hey. yeah. That, that is awesome. And, and yeah, p- encourage people to get down there at four, 43B Lara Way in Campbell Field. Um, but th- the protest last week was at 10 a.m. Can you just remind us, is it, it's going to be at 11 a.m. today? It's going right? to be at 11 this week. Yep. 11 this week. Okay, great. 
Um, thank you so much, Mercedes, for your, your time. Um, for listeners just tuning in, we were uh, talking to Mercedes from renegade activists involved in the community picket um, in protest demanding the closure of weapons facility arms uh, arming, arming Israel. Um, thank you for your time, Mercedes. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a good day, and we'll see you down at HTA. See you there. Down. Word. Bye. <laughs> Cheers, bye. And can I just say, it's bloody excellent that Mercedes and comrades have got Renegade Solidarity Audio Force happening because there's that many protests that I've been to over the years that have had really bad sound systems and you can't hear what people are saying. And what's the point of a protest when you can't hear the staunch political points and arguments that are being made? <coughs> Renegade Solidarity Audio Force fills that gap. Yeah. They bring music to protests. They bring the protestable festival to the streets. And it's a really important thing they do. So shout out to you, Renegade Solidarity Audio Force. What you do is really cool and important. Oh, thank you so much for mentioning Solidarity Sound System. They are a lifesaver for all all the protests taking place around here, especially in Melbourne. The um, spoken word um, is very important in protests. And yes, I I totally agree. You want to hear what people are saying because... Uh, what people are saying on protests can move lots and lots and lots of other people to protest and 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 to be, become politically active. So I'm I, I'm you know being a, a spoken word artist myself, I, I consider this politically extremely important. Yeah, great. Uh, now we're going to uh, go to our next interview soon, hopefully with human rights political activist Lionel Bopagay to give an update on the economic crisis in Sri Lanka. I just need to uh, quickly get in touch with him. But while we wait, I uh, would love to play a song um, by Nina, uh, Nina Simone, uh, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. Enjoy it on 3CR. Green Left Radio.
Back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and you were just listening to "I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free" by Nina Simone. That actually became an, an anthem for the civil rights movement and has been covered many times over. And I guess that that wish for freedom, such a, a simple one, when we think we have it, we actually don't. <laughs> Maybe we think um, others have it because we have it, but you know we can see how. The Palestinians are fighting every day for the right to exist, uh, but also one of the most basic and fundamental natural things to fight for, which is the freedom of movement, um, which you know a lot of people in Gaza, they, they actually don't, they're trapped in that open air, in that prison, and they don't have the right to move. But I hope you en- enjoyed that song. We don't want to keep um, our next guest waiting. We've got Lionel Bopagay on the line. Uh, Lionel is a human rights political activist, a one-time central leader of the Sri Lankan uh, People's Liberation Front, the, G- the JVP, uh, who's now active in, in the Melbourne Sri Lankan community. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Lionel. Oh, why can't I hear it? One second. That's been... Sorry, listeners, um, just a few technical difficulties. Hello? Hello. Oh, sorry, I accidentally... That was my fault, comrade. I forgot to press the on-air button. Sorry to listeners as well. Um, We're joined by Lionel Bopagay. He's going to give us an update on what's happening um, with the economic crisis in in Sri Lanka. Um, Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, comrade. Okay. So, so the, the the popular uprising in in Sri Lanka, uh, Lionel, that removed that autocratic president uh, and war criminal Rajapaksa. Um, we just wanted to know, you know, since since he was removed, what actually has changed for the people under the new regime? Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, it is a good question. Actually, uh, nothing much has changed. Uh, but there are some superficial changes. Uh, if I explain further, instead of the previous president who fled the country, uh, the new president, uh, I mean, the previous president was elected to the presidency, uh, whereas the new president was not elected. 
he was appointed by the parliament, where the majority of uh, members of parliament are those who were elected under the Sri Lanka Pudjana Peramuna, the party that brought the previous president to power with a huge majority. So under the new president, uh, nothing in the system of governance has changed. Corruption, wastage, and mismanagement of the economy, those things clearly continue. The previous president is back in the country. The corrupt lot are still holding power, where, whether they are politicians or bureaucrats. Uh, those who appear to have a tainted history are reappointed to ministries. One of those ministers, for example, the Minister of Health, he was taken into custody due to the pressure exerted by the civil society for his alleged, alleged corrupt activities conducted during the purchase and supply of medication, which is <laughs> an essential need uh, for the people of Sri Lanka. Mm. The president has been able to break the people's struggle. Uh, his political party, the United National Party, had a group mainly representing the middle class in the urban centers of Sri Lanka, and they took part in the Aragalea, the, the struggle movement. This group had some significant influence, but as soon as the previous president jumped the ship and the new president took over, they abandoned the struggle. Thus, the unity between uh, various groups representing the middle class, the youth, the students, and the lower classes, that unity was broken. Yet we need to understand that the workers who are better organized under diverse trade unions and party-affiliated, they were not seen much in action, except for certain trade unions, but they were not so strong unions. The students and the young people, the youth, who continued the struggle, had multiple groups, from progressive end to politically non-aligned, and there were independents, and there were issues among these groups as well, as they were attempting to put their seal on the struggle and to consolidate the whole struggle movement under their umbrella. As the previous regime did, heavy repressive violence was launched against those who continued the struggle. They used the police, the armed forces, and at times those appeared to be mercenaries. And uh, the, the water cannons, batting charges, and all those uh, repressive measures were used. Economically speaking, the new regime was able to gain a loan from the International Monetary Fund as the debt repayments are at a halt, and with uh, several countries such as China, India, Bangladesh, and so on, uh, they have been helping out the regime in various ways through currency swaps and so on. Uh, the regime has been able to provide some concessions to the middle classes by making electricity and fuel available to them, uh, but at much higher prices. The economic burden is unloaded on the working people, uh, mainly uh, by increasing taxes, uh, uh, such as value-added tax, and uh, including many items, uh, in, uh, many other items, including uh, essentials under the value-added tax bracket. And those uh, items were not included previously under the value-added tax bracket. 
Thus, the burden is unloaded on the lower classes, while the usual play of corruption, wastage, and mismanagement continues. With the structural reforms demanded by the International Monetary Fund, though they are not prescribed by um, prescribed uh, by the IMF, the regime uh, has to decide what specific action had to be taken. Has to be taken. Many service provisions are being privatized and commercialized. Uh, this varies from provident funds to government agencies covering electricity, telecommunications, petroleum, and uh, those agencies that are providing services to the populace of Sri Lanka. To divert attention, the regime states that only loss-making enterprises will be commercialized or privatized. But most of those agencies on sale are those that are making profits. On the other hand, government agencies do not have to make a profit as they are established mainly for the purpose of serving the populace by making service provisions available to them. And uh, in addition, there are growing concerns uh, due to the new repressive measures uh, that the government is uh, aiming to take. Uh, to curtail freedom of expression and association mainly. So, for example, uh, uh, there, there is a proposed counterterrorism law that are being subject to discussion. Uh, uh, this threatens to grant authorities sweeping powers to suppress dissent. Uh, this raises fears about the erosion of democratic values and disturbingly discriminatory policies and social exclusion of uh, non-majority non-majoritarian communities that continue uh, thus deepening social divisions and uh, in addition the online safety commission uh, that uh, will be established under the new online safety act is uh, set to control social media and it is going to impose over-censorship and may demand removal of uh, social media posts, the content, within 24 hours without judicial oversight. They say they are going to appoint a commission or something with uh, five members, and uh, if, those, if that commission says to remove it, they have to remove it. And uh, thus, what happens is online satirical jokes may no longer be available uh, to be used to expose corruption and dishonesty of politicians. Now, uh, the regime and uh, the ultra-right conservative political groups have started their usual uh, games in, prepa in preparation of the presidential elections that could be held this year and the general elections that could be held next year. Distribution of items, uh, as has done previously in many elections. Uh, now, this time it is a five kilogram bag of rice. And uh, they also provide financial assistance under a heavily politicized program called Aswasuma. And also distribution of land titles under another program called Urumaya. So they have all, all started these, uh, they are being undertaken now. And uh, this is nothing peculiar to Sri Lanka, I would say. 
because this is the same that happened in many countries, including Argentina, Ghana, Pakistan, etc., uh, who have received IMF assistance and um, assistance from other uh, lending agencies. Most of such assistance will be diverted to electioneering. And uh, after uh, the victory of the regime, uh, once again, they will go back to the IMF and other international financial lending agencies with begging bowl in hand. Those agencies are also happy because a regime that maintains the existing system of governance will remain in power. Yeah, thank, thanks, um, thanks, Lionel. I think Rob, Rob also wants to ask you a question. Over to you, Rob. Oh, hello, Lionel. Actually, I want to ask you three questions, and if you forget what the second and third ones are, just ask me and I'll repeat them. Um, my first question, anyway, is, um, is the struggle uh, in Sri Lanka disrupting the political stability? I specifically say political. Second question was, is the struggle costing businesses uh, really a lot and and my final question is um, you did refer to the the union the unionized workers and I'm just wondering if the rank and file unionized workers um, have have a, a, a very strong mood of resistance you know is what's the mood like uh, among the rank and file uh, unionized uh, workers okay good luck yeah, sorry, comrade. Sorry, comrade. There, you may have to repeat the questions because I have already forgotten <laughs> the first one. I am Manuel, as you know. Uh, uh-huh. I have a very bad memory. No, no. That, that, yeah, you can. Did you want to repeat them? Yeah, oh. if you could. Uh, Look, go one I'll do it one at a time. I'll do it one at yeah. a time. We we are running yeah. just just um just before you answer the questions, Lionel. Um, we are like we don't we don't have too much time. We only have about five to six minutes left for the interview. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I'll, I'll, just pick, I'll just pick the one that is <laughs> the most important. Uh, let yeah. me see. Um, yeah, okay, the rank and file unionised workers. What's the mood, you know, um, um, among them? I'm not really interested in the trade union bureaucracy or even the political parties, but what, what's the mood of your, your ordinary rank and file unionised workers? Yeah, because... Uh, the, 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 they, they are suffering and they, they, they want to resist, but they still they don't know what to do. Now, uh, most of the trade union movement in Sri Lanka, I mean, um, I'm not talking about the bureaucracies, but uh, the, the general trade union movement, it is under the umbrella of the JVP. JVP says it has the strongest trade unions. But unfortunately, uh, they are not, they didn't take part in the struggle and uh, they do not seem to have the intention of uh, immediately taking part in any struggle. After the struggle, what happened is the struggle weakened as a result of what the government did. And uh, there are struggles all over Sri Lanka, including in the North and East, uh, but uh, with, with different purposes in mind. With regard to workers, as you had said, they do not seem to be in the mood of taking part in another struggle as such, mm. unless, unless there is awareness raising among these people by the civil society, the progressive forces, and others who are interested in uh, democratic rights. And uh, the, the, there is some sort of organization. 
that is one of the major experiences from the previous struggle because there was no organization as such um, that that led that struggle at least you know sort of a, a common platform among the groups that took part in the struggle and uh, there were some trade unions that were taking part in the struggle but it was very weak and there was uh, uh, at a certain stage uh, there was an emphasis on launching a general strike that was towards the end of uh, the struggle and as soon as they launched the struggle general strike the jvp walked out mm. and that mm. ruined the whole <laughs> the, the trade union struggle you know sort of that was the, to be, that was intended to be uh, the main backbone uh, of that struggle at the moment as uh, as far as i can see uh, there is no uh, intention on the part of the workers to uh, go for an immediate struggle but i think there is lot of mobilization um, among other sectors uh, for example the young people the students the women they are mainly mobilized by the jvp and there are other groups like frontline socialist party and so on they are also mobilizing but the main mobilization takes place under the jvp and they seem to be increasing in popularity but at the same time i don't know how far they are organized uh, in the sense to to confront the state repression that will be launched uh, in future and uh, because uh, the situation in sri lanka is dire not only the workers even other sectors of the society they are suffering the various aspects i mean there is food food insecurity human rights violations the freedoms are affected so almost all people in the lower uh classes in society they are suffering but they do not have that organization and awareness uh, for the need to struggle and to change the system of governance yeah thank thank you so much lana we wish we had more time with you comrade but i guess just to wrap up the interview i mean you have sort of talked about how people are mobilizing on the ground and and you know the fact that there are protests are actually continuing um and and it was really inspirational to see the the popular uprising aragalaya um in in sri lanka but you know with the, it, it's there's a lot of new repressive measures that that seem to be taking away um a lot of people's freedoms of expression and everything so we appreciate your the update that you've given us i guess like to wrap up maybe um could you sort of tell us a little bit about how the tap like what's happening with tamil and muslim communities in the north and and the east due, you know particularly due to yeah. some of this debt restructuring initi- initiated yeah. under the international Mon- monetary fund and also if you can um because there are protests continuing for for all sorts of reasons would you be able to also tell us about maybe some of the anti-war protests in solidarity with palestine in sri lanka hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now uh, the the political landscape with regard to Tamil and Muslim communities, especially Tamil communities, seem to be changing. Um now the the regime led by Ranil Wickremesinghe president, uh, they they're talking about providing a solution. They have been talking about providing a solution for for decades now. 
and they they are trying to i mean because elections are uh, said to be approaching and um, the president is trying to win over some of the tamil uh, votes and for that he is canvassing among the tamil people uh, what has happened is the main uh, group in not the militant group in the parliamentary representatives uh, in um, among uh, of the tamil people there's a tamil united liberation front the leadership uh, has changed and uh, mr sridharan has taken the leadership and mr sridharan is supposed to be uh, more uh, nationalistic as well as more uh, say, from the point of view of the south so more militant and uh, during the independence day uh, that is that was uh, last on the 4th of <laughs> february uh, there were uh, protests in the north and east and even even in the, in uh, even abroad um, even in canberra there was a protest uh, in front of the sri lankan high commission by the uh, tamil community a small group but they they seem to be more militant so apparently the militancy or militant currents are again on the rise it seems and uh, uh, with north and east the protests continue you know because there are so many so many broken promises with regard to looking at their grievances and uh, problems and uh, with regard to what with regard to what happened to the disappeared people uh, their land rights and so on nothing has been addressed so there is a, there is it is like a powder keg i would say you know sort of we don't know at what time it would uh, uh, burst uh, with regard to palestine we have to understand that in sri lanka there is a peculiar situation uh, for example during the second world war uh, there were groups in sri lanka who supported hitler uh, there were there were extreme nationalist singalis because they thought that uh, the hitler is uh, because hitler is uh, said to be from aryans you know singalis are said to be from <laughs> aryan descendancy mm. so they had this connection they were supporting hitler and uh, in vitka uh, to palestine most of the progressive people uh, have been supporting palestine and they have been against the israeli aggression since 1948 and uh, but what happened is uh, with uh, mainly i would say vitka to the jvp uh, when they Uh, gave up their international stand uh, they are no more they 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 do not seem to be speaking about uh, other uh, struggles uh, that are happening all over the world but still there have been uh, small groups progressives as well as uh, some independent groups who have been vocal uh, in supporting palestine they had protests in front of uh, the american embassy as well and uh, uh, but sri lanka in generally supports a two state solution but ranil wickremasinghe has been supporting uh, the israel uh, on the pretext that uh, the whole thing was launched uh, because of the, what happened on uh, the 7th of october and uh, as as we all know the, the whole thing didn't start on the 7th of october we have to look at the history and the context as to um, not the, the what circumstances those things happened now in uh, in israel there is a, there is a strong uh, sri lankan uh, uh, 
there is about 9,000 Sri Lankans, they say, in Sri Lanka. But the government is, was trying to send some more Sri Lankans because uh, the Israeli government was getting rid of some Palestinian uh, people, you know, sort of from employment in Israel. And uh, they were, India and Sri Lanka, both of them, both, both countries were trying to send uh, their own people for employment in Israel. And I heard that uh, Sri Lanka has sent about 20,000 people to Israel. So, uh, and then uh, there was another step because um, you know, what happened in the Red Sea, mm. the government decided to send uh, another uh, ship by sending naval ships to Sri Lanka. The Vikram Singh government is uh, effectively they are joining the US-led imperialist coalition uh, in support of the genocidal war against Palestinians in Gaza. Yeah, so that is sorry. the general situation. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks, comrade, um, for for joining us on the program this morning. Um, we will have to um, wrap up the interview, but before we do, was there anything else you wanted to let listeners know? Uh, there have been uh, some developments uh, I would like to mention because uh, there was a recent visit uh, uh, organized by the central government of India, and they invited the National People's Power. Uh, uh, a delegation led by uh, Comrade Andrew Kumar Shanaika to visit uh, India, and they are still, I think, a five-day visit. They are still continuing with it, and uh, it is a major development uh, in the sense, you know, sort of say. Uh, now, the JVP has been uh, a vocal campaign against in vocal campaign against India uh, under the slogans of uh, um, Indian expansionism anti-Indianism, and so on, especially during the 19, end, end of 1980s, like. And uh, since then, they have given up some of those slogans and so on. Uh, but I think it is an important step uh, because uh, uh, it is denoting uh, uh, the recognition of the JVP as the developing, uh, growing, major political force in Sri Lanka. So I just wanted to make uh, the listeners aware of that situation. No, thank you. Thanks so much, Comrade Lionel. And for the listeners just tuning in, we we, uh, we were just talking to um, Lionel Bopage, a human rights political activist and one-time central leader of the Sri Lankan People's Liberation Front, JVP. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Lionel, and we'll have you back on the show hopefully soon. Thank you very much, Donald. Cheers, huh? Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, great. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, well, we're going to go to a quick break. Sorry, listeners, we, we have run a little bit late this this uh, morning, and the interview with David Ball um, from the MUA to talk about the outcome of the DP World Dispute, we might not actually get time to do it, uh, but we will be speaking to either him or uh, another unionist in maybe a couple of weeks' time. Um, we're just going to go to a quick, quick break, and then we're going to have an update. Hopefully, we've kept them waiting. Um, update from Camp Sovereignty. So please stay tuned. If you're feeling the heat this summer, you're not alone. Our wildlife becomes stressed and unwell more quickly in hot weather. Please keep an eye out for native animals this summer, especially during a heat wave. If you have a backyard, balcony, or courtyard, provide water and shade. 
call Wildlife Victoria on 8400-7300 if you see wildlife in distress or for more information. To donate or volunteer, go to wildlifevictoria.org.au. Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter. No more whispering in our arms. Gonna rise up, break these chains. Stop these killing games. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday at the State Library. Eastern Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Okay, you're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And we are now joined by Jasper Cohen Hunter, uh, Wondery Woi Wurrung, um, and is one of the organisers of Camp Sovereignty. Good morning, Jasper. Good morning, how are you going? Yeah, well, well, thank you. Uh, we just, you know, we wanted to maybe tell us what's happening on the ground um, at the moment, like what, what, what sort of things have you encountered? What's the mood like? Would you be able to set the scene for us, for, for our listeners? Yeah, look, everything's been going pretty positive at the moment. Um, we have just secured a four-month fire permit. Um, and one of the last things that actually um, was the catalyst for shutting down the camp in 2006 was the sacred fire. Um, but we've had a pretty positive um, interaction with Fire Rescue Victoria, um, and they've basically established protection for us for 120 days. Um, which is one less thing we need to worry about. So that means that we can um, practice our culture and practice our ceremony. So that's a really positive update. That's really that's really great news. Um, Jasper, how are you going? It's Zane here. Um, can you tell us just just a recap about Camp Sovereignty? Um, how did it start, and what's the what's the plan or the the kind of the goal of the camp? Yeah, so Camp Sovereignty First was established in 2006 by a group called the Black GST, um, and GST stands for Genocide, Sovereignty and Treaty. They're the uh, unanswered questions um, of the Australian colony. Um, and so this was a protest that was started um, to draw international attention um, to the human rights abuses against Aboriginal peoples during the Commonwealth Games, um, also the Stolen Wealth Games. Um, and the camp was established to occupy the space near where the, um, the games was going on so that there was an international spotlight um, in the sporting world and in the news um, towards the sort of unanswered questions um, here and the unanswered contradictions um, of Australian colonisation. Yeah, nice. Um, have, you, have you got a thought of the day for our listeners? Just in general, regarding uh, black philosophy, worldview, struggle, could, could mm-hmm. be anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, well, yesterday um, there was finally the meeting uh, with Melbourne City Council. Um, I guess, long story short, it was um, 
pretty supportive around sort of short-term goals, you know, reconciliation action plan type of goals. You know, oh, we'll think about renaming the park. We'll think about, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, but as for getting back Crown land, we'll see what happens. Um, that's a state government issue. So, um, you know, people are always having a chance about, you know, land rights and land back. But when are we going to actually just take the land back instead of begging for it, you know? So, um, you know, if we, if we truly have um, unceded sovereignty on this land, then we should be able to just take the land back um, rather than begging uh, the, the foot on the neck. So we'll see what happens um, coming forward. Um, is taking and occupying this place. But as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's pretty secured right now, um, and I reckon we've got this land back. Yeah, this is it's really exciting, um, Jasper. Could, would you be able to just let us know, you know, can anyone join or, you know, how, how can people get involved and support the camp? Um, or even if people aren't able to join the camp, you know, there are many ways to support First Nations rights and, and rights to sovereignty and self-determination. So, you know, would you have any advice on, like, how, you know, do we just rock up or, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things about rocking up um, that's important to remember is that it is a camp on a ceremonial ground and yes. a burial ground. So 38 of our ancestors uh, were repatriated here from stolen graves. Um, so we are camping on a resting place. Um, so when coming, everyone's welcome, um, as long as they're anti-racist, anti-fascist, um, you know, as long as they come respectful and keep in mind that we are consistently on a burial ground of our ancestors um, in the forefront of their mind um, and that this is an Aboriginal community space that's been set up um, so that we can practice our culture. But people can come and support. Um, one of the main things that we probably do need is material support um, rather than financial support. So, you know, if people come with a donation of gum leaves um, for our ceremony or they come with um, native firewood, I would possibly recommend river red gum um, it's the most accessible um, native firewood um, as long as it's dry um, so that we can keep that going um, and also just bring yourself um, in, in an eager mind to learn um, about what true sovereignty means in this country um, and how to decolonize your backyard you know if people are a NAM resident um, and want to come and learn um, from the first people um, about how to actually decolonize your own backyard this is the place this sounds, this sounds wonderful. Jasper. Yeah. Uh, hello, Jasper. I'm uh, Rob Zocchi. And um, the King's Domain, I mean, I just think it's absolutely magnificent that these beautifully landscaped gardens that represent the ruling class and represent colonisation is uh, being occupied by you because I'm sure that you can look after it just as well, if not better. <laughs> That's really fantastic. Um, I'm... You did mention uh, a support that you're getting. Uh, just even thus far, uh, can you maybe tell me something about um, what sort of reactions you've had from passers-by, e- even just not, not, not necessarily people who are supporting you, just people mm-hmm. who want to enjoy it? What, what's their reaction? Are they positive or negative or whatever? Oh, look, for every one negative interaction we have, we have ten positive, you know. Um, we might have a negative interaction with the council and then the park rangers come down and bring us water. So, you know, uh, 50-50. Um, most people are just confused. You know, we're doing something that is against the system. So um, people aren't familiar with this style of protest because it's not something that they usually see. So normally um, it's just important to give people an education lesson um, about what we're doing there because it is such an unfamiliar sight to see um, 
all of these decolonial flags um, and and occupation space in an area that is so colonial. But it's also important to um, remind just on that about these well-maintained gardens and everything is that this was the first mission um, where our people were um, set up. So it was 100, uh, 895 um, acres was purchased and set up um, by the government where they had a mission school where the children were first separated um, from um, the Aboriginal people that were camping on the river there. Um, so we do have a history here, a colonial history, um, and this was a ceremonial ground where we all um, came together during the first um, forming years um, of colonisation and the Port Phillip Association setting up Melbourne. Um, this is where we were all camping together. So we have done this before. Um, it just wasn't called Camp Sovereignty. So, you know, 200 years ago, we all were camped on the riverbanks here together, um, regardless of these sort of native title organisations and everything like that. We were all camping together as a means of survival. Um, and we have a long history here predating that. Um, Jasper, if you did have a successful um, urban land claim here and you do assert sovereignty, what would you rename the park to instead of King's Domain, which is obviously a very uh, inappropriate name? Yeah, look, that's just a conversation that we'd have to have with the traditional owners. Um, and at this time, we are still having um, ongoing native title debates between the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong. So um, it would be a difficult and long conversation ahead. Um as for, like, naming the place, um, it's open for now. Um, we're still having those ongoing discussions as to what it could be because it is sort of... It's important, but at the same time, it's a Band-Aid approach. Like, we're trying to get the land back for ceremony and for the future survival of our culture. And so naming the park, for me personally, is, like, the least of the concerns as long as we can secure the ground um, and also just secure the future of our people. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. It is. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, for listeners, that, that was, we're talking with Jasper Cohen-Hunter, uh, Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, and one of the organisers of Camp Sovereignty. We encourage everyone to join, um, you know, support Camp Sovereignty, occupation at King's Domain, d- domain bring gum leaves, uh, a firewood, r- r- river, river red gum, was it? Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the perfect one um, for burning down here. Yeah, and learn about what sovereignty means. Really, thank you for, for giving us that update, Jasper. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll come back with more Green Left Radio on 3CR. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we've got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. 
Uh, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR Radical Radio here in sunny Nam, Melbourne. And we've got Zane, Rob and Chloe on the radio with you. Uh, I just wanted to give a quick plug to an article that I've written that's going to be coming out on the pages, on the digital pages of Green Left in the near future. Uh, I was at a rally in support of offshore wind up in Mullabimba, Newcastle on Sunday. Uh, the rally was organised by Hunter Workers, the effectively the trades hall, the peak union body there. Uh, there was about 12 different unions endorsed that. It was endorsed by Hunter Jobs Alliance. There was a decent block of people from the Greens there, rising tide there. Uh, it was a really cool rally. What surprised me is that there was five different union speakers who are more or less Labor Party aligned who were talking about um, basically coal being phased out and a transition away from coal. That's a, that's a very new development. Historically, uh, Labor aligned union leaders have been very nervous about talking about moving away from coal exports. I think there's been a shift in recent years where people recognise that the industry is going to start to decline whether we like it or not, and therefore we need to start thinking about um, moving away from it. And so, yeah, there's a bunch of the union movement up there uh, linking up with uh, climate activists, digging their heels in, making sure this big offshore wind farm goes ahead and starting to have a dialogue about a broader transformation of the region's economy. And that's very exciting because, yeah, people have been working towards that for a while, but it's great to see the union movement really starting to get behind that. Yeah, definitely. And look um, look out for that article. What's it called, Zane? That is an excellent question. And you haven't I, come I, up with the, the title yet. Pardon uh, me. <laughs> something about unions and community, ah. offshore wind, Newcastle. They'll find it. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, listeners, we're just going to do a quick activist calendar for you. So today, uh, like we said before, um, Friday, the February, February the 9th, where there's going to be a protest, disrupt the war machine, shut down HTA weapons factory at 11 a.m., 43B Laraway in Campbell Field. Uh, Saturday, February the 10th, there's going to be a community event, Manningham for Palestine, sausage sizzle, Face painting, speeches, uh, bake sale stalls from 11 a.m. Um, at the Manningham Council offices at 699 Doncaster Road in Doncaster. Sunday, February 11th, we've got the usual mass rally, lift the siege, end the genocide, free Palestine, 12 noon at the State Library, Swanson Street in the city. Tuesday, February 13th, there's going to be Palestine rally, uh, Mooney Valley for Palestine, call on Mooney Valley Council to pass Palestine solidarity motion, 6pm, Mooney Valley Civic Centre, 9 Callaway Avenue, uh, Mooney Ponds. Uh, another rally is taking place uh, at the same time at Hobson's Bay for Palestine, a call on Hobson's Bay Council to pass Palestine Solidarity Motion. Uh, 6 p.m., Hobson's Bay Civic Centre, 115 Civic Parade, Altona. And also on Wednesday, February 14th, it's next week, there's a rally, Free Dan, um, Free Dan Nong, sorry, it's a Dan Nong rally for Free Palestine, Show Love for Palestine, 6.30 Harmony Square, that's outside the Dan Nong Library, at 2, 20, 220 
Lonsdale Street in Dandenong. And you can, you know, we only had a, a bit of time to read out those events, but the Green Left Activist Calendar is published every second Wednesday by the Melbourne Supporters of Green Left. Uh, so if you want to receive it, just reach out to us at Melbourne at Green Left. Um, at um, sorry, Melbourne at greenleft.org.au, or you can just check out the events at the website at greenleft.org.au slash events. And we're coming to the end of the program, so um, yeah, we want to thank our guests, Lionel Bobpigay, uh, Mercedes from Renegade Activist. Apologies to David Ball that we didn't have time to, to interview him, and also to Jasper. Um, uh, sorry, uh, Jasper. Sorry, I've forgotten his um, uh, Jasper Cohen Hunter. Correct, Jasper Cohen Hunter from Camp Sovereignty for joining us, and also to our listeners to for tuning in today. We hope and you enjoyed. The Rob, show. in sixty seconds, I think you wanted to give this a quick. Oh, no, no, there's not enough time for that. Because okay. It's about Andrew Bolton. I'd need one and a oh, half hours. Oh, sorry, Rob. So, look, I'll just simply say, uh, keep on keeping on Free Free Palestine. That's good enough. Yeah, and also show your support by subscribing to, to 3CR. We're going through a subscriber drive right now between the 12th and 18th of February. Um, you know, you can you can help us by subscribing online, in person, at, at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy. Um, you know, that your support will help keep one of the best community radio stations on air and give voice to those who are traditionally denied a place in the mainstream media. Um, and, you know, you are helping to build skills and empower disadvantaged groups with training courses and special projects. Um, so, yeah, fund this radio, radio station, has a policy mm. of non-racist and non-sexist broadcasting and supports the struggle of working people everywhere. Ken Harris. Yeah, and ABC keeps getting stacked with more and more people from News Corps. Uh, the new chair of the ABC is going to be News Limited scum, Murdoch scum. So that's why it's so important to keep 3CR healthy. All right. Thanks. Uh, join us next week. Bye. Bye. Adios. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your super...